Shorewords, the ASPM podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shorewords, and each episode I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about their tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today it's my great pleasure to talk with Kiki Patch and Ryan Anderson about their article that appeared last fall in Shore and Beach, Adapting to Shoreline Retreat, Finding a Path Forward. But before that, I'll pause for some information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So this article that you have is with... um, both you two have written it, and you have two other co-authors, Charles Lester and Gary Griggs. Gary appeared on the first Shorewords podcast I had, and then Charles Lester um, was on one of the ASPM podcasts recently talking with Tyler Buckingham and Peter Ravella. So it's nice that you two are also on this now. So we'll have all four of the authors of this paper appearing on the ASPN podcast network, which I think is a wonderful accomplishment for us. And now there's an opportunity to include you two as well. But before we start talking about your paper, though, um, finding a path forward, what can you say about your path that led you to this paper and to your your chosen advocation and vocation? I assume it's both. And what's your coastal background? Kiki, why don't you get started? All right. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks for having me today. So my path forward is a little windy, I guess. I grew up off the coast of South Carolina on Hilton Head Island just enjoying the beaches and the ocean and the coast. And I went to the University of Virginia thinking I would study psychology or women's studies or anthropology or something of the nature. But then I took a class called Beaches, Coasts, and Rivers with Bob Dolan, who is like the grandfather of coastal science. And he started talking about his work on coastal hazards, coastal processes, sand and barrier islands. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. So I said, Bob, I want your job. What do I do? And he said, well, go to grad school out with Gary Griggs at UC Santa Cruz. So I applied there. I got in and right after undergrad, I moved to California and uh, I started working with Gary. And as you know, he has this incredible love of the coast that is totally infectious. And I started working with sea cliff erosion and sand supply coastal hazards and things like that. I graduated in 2004 and then ended up having my first child. And I moved back to Virginia to work with Bob Dolan and ended up having three more kids. And, you know, 10 years and four kids later, I found myself back at Cal State Channel Islands with a tenure track position and, you know, work on the coast and coastal hazards and coastal processes, just kind of sitting there waiting for me. So we're here now and I'm just love that I can dive right back into to where I left off. And, and now I have these great connections and sort of these interdisciplinary uh, people that I'm working with to get this really sort of multi-lens view of the coast and what's happening with this very personal experience of my family basically being one of the ones that I'm talking about managed retreat. Are you sure you want to stay on this island? And my brother's moving there and my sister's moving there. And you know, it, it hits home here, and I, I really try to figure out ways to communicate science with them. So it's very personal, but a windy path. 
That's so true. I, mean, I think all of our coastal paths are a bit windy, but yours seems rather direct, though. <laughs> I guess when I put it that way, it, it is, but it felt like it was a long kind of way coming out back to California, I guess, finding my way back. And we're glad you're back. How about you, Ryan? What was your path? Well, I think I might have a similar windy path, but um, thanks thanks uh, for having us here. This is really fun. Um, so I grew up in Orange County, um, kind of far from the coast, you know, before I was 10 years old. I remember going to beaches like Corona Del Mar, and uh, I really loved going to the beach. And there was this point uh, in our kind of our family's lives where we were either going to move to the desert or we we're going to move to the beach. And my mom said, well, looks like you're either going to be riding motorcycles or you're going to be surfing. And we ended up moving when I was 11 years old. I think it was kind of really fortunate. We went to Carlsbad, um, California in Northern San Diego County. And I just loved it. I spent the next, I don't know how many years. That's where I was. Every day I could be there for, I mean, we, we had this little crew of surfers that, if we weren't there for six hours, uh, we kind of gave each other a bunch of grief about it. So I spent a lot of time at the beach um, when I was a kid, my teenage years. And then um, I loved it, but I loved it in a certain way, more as like a, you know, like a surfer and somebody being there and using it, um, enjoying the beauty of it all. I never really thought about studying it per se. Um, I actually started off in photography did a lot of photography of the coast. And then I shifted over into anthropology. Um, but I was doing more kind of kind of different anthropology, um, sort of in my master's and some earlier work. And it wasn't until I went to um, the PhD program at the University of Kentucky, which is kind of ironic because I go into the middle of the country and I realized, oh, I could probably study the coast. And that started with uh, my doctoral work, which was in um, Baja California Sur in Mexico in a place called Cabo Pulmo. And ever since then, I've kind of been doing work on coastal conservation and development issues. And sort of even more recently, I realized, well, I could actually also study some of the places that I'm from. Um, and so the more recent work I've been doing is on the California coast, in Santa Cruz, in San Diego County. And this is where I've um, been able to um, kind of make some new friends and connections uh, like with Kiki and also Gary um, and some of the work that we've been doing has been really fascinating. Um, and for me, probably the most fascinating part is looking at something in some different ways that I've known for decades and to start kind of seeing it from these different anthropological perspectives, but also um, how some of my colleagues like Kiki and Gary's and others, how they approach it. So it's been really fascinating. Um, I love to talk about the beach, so I'm glad to be here. So I, I think it's really interesting that your mom was going to someplace with sand. It was either going to be the desert or to the beach. So sand was clearly in your future, Ryan. Yeah, it was one or the other. It was one or the <laughs> other. Certainly. So the, the, the title of your paper it starts from the point of view that shoreline retreat's going to happen. And so Ryan is a person who works with sort of the study of humans and human nature and humanity. How do you think we convince people that retreat's real? And how do you suggest talking about it? Yeah, that's a tough question. It's kind of similar to the broader problem of, of climate change, where even, even the subject itself can kind of shut down the conversation. Um, I think the way to do it is, is to kind of bring it home to people and find ways to illustrate it to them through things that they know. Um, and, and so when I go back home, I still consider San Diego County home. Um, I talk to a lot of old friends. I talk to new people that I meet and talking about the sort of the connection that they have to places, but also something that I find really effective is talking about what they know about it. And this, this reminds me of some of the work that um, Dan Reinemann is doing also at uh, Cal State Channel Islands about sort of the local knowledge that surfers have and others. A lot of coastal users, people who live and love the beach, they have a lot of experience there. They have a lot of memories there. And I find that to be one good way 
um, to sort of get the conversation going. And what matters the most sometimes is that the conversation starts happening. And I'm talking about things like, well, how long have you been going to this place? Do you remember what it looked like when you first came here? Um, What does it look like now? And this kind of stuff starts to make change more visible. And sometimes people have experienced a lot more change than they realize, um, especially once you start talking about it and looking at photographs or talking about how it used to be. Um, So I I really think sort of getting the conversation started, um, that's that's the way you got to do it first. You got to get the conversation going. I think that's a great point. To Ryan, I it's such a great point because even when I go back home and I'm talking to my parents, like, okay, this is what I do. Your house is going underwater. You should sell now. And how do I communicate that with them? And one thing that strikes that has honestly in the last, I don't know, 10 years been the only thing that they kind of start to listen to is the king tides. Like, okay, the tides are higher. And so they visually see it. And so I think the King Tides Project is a great way for people to visualize, what is this going to look like? How do we start that conversation? Because then it's not theoretical, it's water in their backyard. And that was the first time they really are like, okay, well, what happens if it floods like this? Now it used to be twice a year. Now it's six times a year. Then it's going to be 11 times a year and 50 times a year and 100 times a year. How many times a year is it going to take before you think, okay, maybe this isn't a great spot anymore? It's a hard lesson. It's a hard thing to really start the conversation on. And, and you're right that it, you have to meet people where they are and what they're observing. I was listening to a podcast recently with Catherine Hayhoe. as a new book coming out saving us. And that's her big point is just find places and ways that you can talk with people about the issues and relate it to their lives, to their world, to the things they're considering. Now, Kiki, you you also approach this not only as an observer of the situation, but you're a scientist, you're a geologist, you train with Gary Griggs. And so in your perspective, what do you think is the most compelling sort of scientific evidence we have that really gets you thinking about the need for retreat at some point? Well, I mean, I think that's why this paper was so fun to write, because I did work and and study with Gary, and it was all about sand supply and how quickly are the sea cliffs retreating and what happens when we armor our coast and looking at passive erosion and active erosion. And it was all very geological right? It was the numbers of, you know, of retreat along the coast or looking at El Nino and how you can have, you know, a hundred years worth of sea level rise in one El Nino cycle. What does that look like? And so it was all very scientific, but I realized that those numbers, when you start spewing the sea level rise rate or how it's accelerating or, you know, waves set up and you're trying to explain the, the, sand movement to people, they kind of glazed over. And it was really wonderful working with Ryan, who had that human perspective of, okay, yes, sand supply is very important. A regional perspective is very important. But how do we actually communicate that in a way where people will start to listen? Why do people hate the word retreat? What is it about that word where no matter what it is, even if it's the best idea, nobody wants to do it? What is it psychologically about that word? So being able to pick Ryan's brain um, and then Charles Lester, who had sort of the management perspective, how do we make policy that will help people make the choices that they need to make? Because whether, as Gary says this, and I love it, whether it's managed retreat or unmanaged retreat, the science says we are going to have to retreat. That is what is happening with the sea level rise and the conditions of today. And so I think, you know, pulling all of these pieces together with Ryan and Charles and Gary and myself, I feel like we've created this little dream team squad of like figuring out these different aspects to the problem that has been really fun. Yeah, definitely. I can see it being a fun, a fun group to be part of. So Ryan, what's the better word than retreat? What, what are, 
what language should we be using to make people realize that where they are today isn't where they can be over the long term? Yeah. So, you know, this is something that I feel like I could do a whole research project on, which would be something like the linguistics or the anthropology of the term managed retreat itself. Um, I think from what I'm seeing in field work that I've done, and this is in Santa Cruz and San Diego counties mostly, um, a lot of people interpret that phrase to mean um, something something like defeat or giving up or um, you know not doing everything that we possibly could. So they see it as it's interpreted as being about abandonment. Um, I know that there was a similar kind of not so great reception to the term in um, England and the UK, and they actually. It's been common there to rephrase it, um, managed realignment. Um, I think, you know, it could easily be kind of a, you know, we could pick one term or another term or this term or that term. I think emphasizing that it's not just abandonment, it's not just sort of giving up. And I mean, I think emphasizing that element is really important um, because we could sort of keep hopscotching from one term to another. I think trying to get the conversation going around what it can mean, what it does mean, what it can look like uh, would be really important. And that kind of reminds me of a new piece by um, uh, Catherine Mock and A.R. Siders where they're talking about um, reframing retreat and kind of what it can mean and that it doesn't just mean, you know, and I can see this in my field work that kind of a common perception of managed retreat is it means really basically uh, sort of giving up coastal property is going to be destroyed and it's just going to be sort of abandoned and moved back. And that's a really sort of rough version of it. Um, but also what I'm seeing in the field work that I'm doing is there's not much discussion about what it does mean. The conversation just gets shut down um, when it comes up you know, there's kind of this resistance to it or, or kind of these preconceived ideas about what it means. And again, that's why I think we got to really talk through what it can mean, what it does mean, what it looks like. Yeah, that what it looks like is, is the big question, um, along with some other things I'll bring up in a little bit. But um, one of my recent podcasts with Cass was with John Englander about his new book, moving to higher ground. And that's mostly concerned with flooding where for the most part, your paper's talking about erosion. I understand that difference, but he identified that he thinks probably a 30 year time period till 2050 around that is the time period to be talking to people about for what do you anticipate to happen in the future? How do you plan for that? And what do you think is going to be going on? And, and what are your concerns? And that going beyond that, people just can't really get their heads around it. Um, for erosion, though, Kiki, what do you think is um, the, is that a reasonable time period to be thinking about? How do you get people to get off the, the non-stationarity of today, but the perceived stationary of today to thinking about this all going to be different in the future? Granted, there's king tides, but when you're talking about erosion, how do you make that more of a uh, a concept people can understand and work with? That's a great question, Leslie. And I think it's funny that you just brought up uh, Englander's book because I just bought a copy of it and sent it to my parents yesterday, which is so funny. He has this great <laughs> passage in there where he talks about, okay, maybe it's not your lifetime on your house, but it's going to affect um, the house that you want to leave your child. Cause we were just having those conversations of, okay, well, my sister's going to take over your house. Is this what you want to saddle her with? Or, or what are we thinking here? <laughs> but in terms of erosion, I think what really makes people stop and pay attention is when you have a large wave event, like one we just had here, what, two weeks ago, where you actually see the evidence of that erosion happen. And with something like cliff retreat, that is irreversible. So here at Westward Beach by Zuma down in Los Angeles, 
um, county, they had a whole access road erode into the sea, right? And it's like, okay, well, shoot, now what do we do? And that is some infrastructure that is very important to the area in terms of free public parking, free access to the beach, the public's beach, and all of a sudden it's eroded and now blocked off with police tape and we don't have a plan for what to do. You know, our goal here is to make these regional plans and have strategies and tipping points of when this erosion happens, it will trigger this management strategy. But those numbers get really hard to wrap your head around or what does that look like? So it's actually going to be, in my opinion, these extreme events, these large wave events that really sort of call people to action saying, well, do we have a plan in place? No? Yes? What are we thinking? What are we going to do? Because as Ryan said, I think earlier, these plans take a long time to enact, right? And so we can talk today about how we're going to you know, plan for managed retreat 50 years from now, but there are probably 10 steps between today and managed retreat, and we're going to have to get community buy-in and funds for all of those Band-Aid steps along the way. So whether it's um, beach nourishment for a couple of years, or whether you're going to install some sort of temporary armoring structure, or, you know, what those steps look like. I think it takes a large event, some sort of disaster really to call people to action. I wish it wasn't that way because I think it's it can be very devastating and sad. But when those pictures come of, you know, the the waves flooding people's houses and the roads falling into the sea and the bike paths gone and you start to tug on people's emotions of, you know, their beach day is threatened, their sort of way of life starts to be threatened, it wakes them up a little bit more. Yeah. So um, for both of you, and I guess I don't care who starts first, maybe Ryan, but do you see there being a different way of addressing infrastructure than private development? And one of the things that I, I went to graduate school as a planner, as a land use planner at one point. And the idea was that as you put in roads and put in infrastructure, you induce development to come there. And that was one of those hallmarks of the environmental movement that you didn't want to start cutting roads in every place because that would then induce sprawl and growth different places. And you needed to be strategic about where you place these new pieces of infrastructure as well as where you wanted to develop that sort of urban boundary that is so important within the California Coastal Act that Charles Lester talks about a lot. But do, do you see the obverse happening as well? Is that you? Which do you remove first? Which do you think of taking out first? Because in many places, it's going to be the homes that are threatened first, and then either the infrastructure is going to be exposed, and then that's going to become a public expense to try and address protection of it. Or do we start thinking about retreat of infrastructure and they're, they're very different problems and different approaches you have to take to those. So what's a community, where do you think a community should place its first focus as it looks at climate change and the issues that we'll be facing in the future? I can, I, can, uh, I think I can take or start with that one. That's, I mean, that's a tough question because one, one of the big problems, and again, I hear this in a lot of field work is there's a lot of you know, concern about um, from some of the community members and communities that I work with. This is a real frequent um, response is, is sometimes they feel like, um, you know, they're concerned about what they call like one size fit all approaches, which I don't really think that's necessarily the case um, that that's what's happening in California, for example. Um, I think like the Coastal Commission is looking at and has been looking at all kinds of different options um, for quite a while, but from a kind of a community-based perspective, I think sometimes there's a concern that, you know, they're going to have to do, you know, sort of the same thing that everybody else does. Everybody has sort of a unique coast and situation. I would say that, you know, I don't know if this gets at your question or not. I think the big issue here 
is there's a real need to recognize what the coastline is. Um, and there's this one line in this book by, in that book by um, Kiki and Gary and uh, Lauren Savoy from 2005, Living with the California Coast, I believe it's called. And Gary brings this up in his work here and there. And he makes the point that in the mid 20th century, um, in terms of um, sort of, you know, sea level rise and coastal development, it was a period of quite a bit of stability. And a lot of the California coast was developed 1945 to the late 70s during this relatively stable period. And I think my sort of impression of this is that I think this has shaped how a lot of people approach the coast. They see it as largely a stable entity that they want to keep in place and they want it to look the same as it did when they were growing up. Um, And so I think this question of, you know, infrastructure versus houses is going to depend on the place. The bigger question is, and the bigger issue is, a lot of the stuff is in a dynamic zone that moves. Um, and again, Gary and others point this out in their work. When, when there's foundations on sand, that's a pretty good indication that you're in a, you're in a fluid geological zone. You're in a space that moves. And there has to be kind of a broader recognition and acceptance of what a coastline is and and it can be stopped to a certain extent but not every community is going to have the you know i mean honestly they're not going to have the economic power um, or political pull to build giant seawalls so most communities are going to have to find some other way and i think recognizing what they're dealing with is is a huge step i think that's a great point ryan i would also say Um, I think one of the problems here is we start to think, do I protect the highway or the houses? Do I protect this campground or this, you know, multimillion dollar house? But the geologist in me is saying, well, you need to protect your sand supply. You need to look at this at a regional scale and you need to figure out regionally you, what are your priorities? Where are the areas that are important for endangered birds? Where are the areas that are your um, public beaches that have really great accessibility for equal access to all? Where are your beaches that are important for your economics? Where are your drivers of the economy? Where are your beaches serving as storm buffers? And you really need to take this regional scale look at your stretch of coastline and understand how the sand is moving, how to manage it regionally, and then make those really tough choices. For example, in this area, we have to protect Highway 1 because you can't get from point A to point B if this highway goes under. In another sense, you may want to protect, you know, Ventura Beach because it has really great free parking. A lot of the community goes there. Um, And it's an important economic driver. And then alternatively, we may want to protect Ormond Beach, which nobody goes to because it is an important snowy plover habitat. So when you start to take this piecemeal look at the coast, like this house versus this house, who are we going to protect? It gets really challenging. And that's why, you know, it's a, a larger task to sort of zoom out a little bit and try to get some perspective because there's there were going to be a lot of really hard choices coming down the line. And right, those choices may need to happen 30 years from now, but the planning for that needs to happen today. So how do we communicate that? Is it with changing our words? Is it with more community education? Is it with, you know, starting with a bike path and moving to a campground? What does this look like where you can get buy-in from people? when I talk to groups, I I really try to hit all the different ways people may look at and value the beach because we're all looking at it with a different perspective. But really, you need everybody to get on the same page and uh, and make those hard, hard decisions. That's true. And as as you pointed out with Westward Beach, I mean, you you can have a plan or not, but, but then nature has a way of jumping in whether you have a plan or not and suddenly taking a place that might not have been a high priority for you and turn it into the most immediate concern of the month or the season or the year. 
So you also have to have that flexibility of, of responding to that dynamic nature that maybe doesn't lend itself well to doing long-term planning for it. So it's, it is a, it, it's a great opportunity for people who have wonderful ideas to try to consider them and put them in place and, and, and have the flexibility and, and um, dynamic versatility to, to respond to these different conditions as they arise. And I think there's going to be more and more variability in what we're seeing along the coast in the years to come. But you, you've both sort of skirted around the question or the topic of economics, and you bring it up a little bit in your paper, but where do you think economics falls into all of this? It's a hard question, I know, and either of you who want to start, um, maybe Kiki, where, where does economics fit in in your mind? It is a really hard question, and I actually do a lot of work with Phil King, who's an economist and, and starts to put a dollar value on everything, because as he's made me realize, if you don't put a dollar value on something, you're essentially saying its value is zero. And so I don't know if I totally believe that or not, but it is a good way to think about it and communicate uh, use it as a communication tool. So again, I bring up my family again, because it's like my big challenge to communicate with them. And the only time other than the King Tides conversation that I felt like I was getting through to them was when we were talking about the three strikes and you're out. What happens when FEMA is not going to bail you out of um, hurricane damage anymore? And so once you start talking about dollars, people will start to listen. But there are a lot of levels, I think, of the economics. So, you know, if you're looking at real estate property tax as a huge economic driver, okay, that's one thing. And then you're looking at California's um, tourism and recreation dollars, okay, $17 billion of direct revenue to the state. Our beaches are very, very important economically. And sometimes I think it's easier to get people to listen when you're talking about those dollars. And so while I'm not an economist, I realize that it's really important to work with an economist because, again, if you don't have a dollar value on that, you're saying it's zero. And that's not good. The beach is not worth zero dollars. But again, you run into some tricky situations there. So what is the ecological value of the beach? I don't know. Right. Phil tries to put some dollar values on that to help communicate its importance or what's its intrinsic value. So how much is the beach worth because we love it and it makes us feel good? Would I add up like my therapy dollars <laughs> that I don't have to go to therapy because I'm at the beach? I don't know. And that is the job of the economist. But I do see the value in having that be part of the discussion. Ryan, do you want to add anything? Yeah, yeah, I can jump in here. So I think um, talking about it in terms of, of uh, values and economic value is, is we've got to do that. Um, a lot of times what you have are competing interests and values um, in the same space. Like, for example, you know, there's the interests of property owners who are right on the water. And in some cases, those are those interests are pitted against the um, sort of user interests of, um, you know, visitors and other residents from um, maybe other parts of the community or the city who come to use the beach, right? And then you can get that whole dynamic of kind of the tension between armoring beaches and, you know, what the subsequent result is of doing that, what that does to beaches um, to protect certain interests um, and kind of the kind of public use interests with um, other questions of, sort of coastal um, rehabilitation or managed retreat or coastal restoration, right? So you have kind of these competing interests. I mean, I would argue that in California, I mean, you can see this pretty clearly in some cases like Del Mar, you can see it up in, um, you know, some of the tensions up in Pacifica. There's a, there's a strong tension between um, kind of the economic interests and real estate interests right on the water's edge. Um, and sort of other interests and values that are associated with the beach. Um, and it's complicated because these coastal property values, if you go and look at Zillow or whatever, and you go up and down the coast, 
Um, if you get just a general value for somewhere like Manhattan Beach and you're talking like a average home estimate uh, or home value of about three and a half million or something like that. But if you look at right on the water, those values are astronomically higher. There is a lot of economic value sitting right on the water's edge. But I think it's very important to point out that those values are sort of held up in a way um, by not completely acknowledging kind of the forces that are at play. And I think some of the tensions about managed retreat, um, that's what it's, a lot of it is about. And you've, there's, you know, reported cases of um, folks in Del Mar and others, say, you know, expressing concern that if there's even this kind of recognition that managed retreat is something we need to even consider, there's this fear about um, property values starting to drop. I think an important thing to think about here is those really high property values, what is holding those up, right? Beyond seawalls um, and beyond, you know, beach nourishment and these other kind of coastal management practices, what kinds of social practices and beliefs um, and kind of habits are holding that stuff up? Um, whether we're talking about flood insurance, hazard insurance, um, um, you know, just kind of this, these patterns of, of, of buying and selling right on the coast. There's a lot that's holding this stuff up. And I think we should think about um, how long that's going to last. Um, I do think the writing seems to be on the wall for a lot of people, but there's still quite a bit of resistance um, up and down the state to kind of acknowledging what we're dealing with. And it likely will affect property values right on the coast. And so what it's going to be, and Kiki, you brought this up earlier, it's going to be a matter of thinking through, right? Change is going to happen. Um, there's going to be changes. There's going to be losses. There's going to be things that look different. And it's going to be a matter of communities coming together, um, probably, hopefully more so than kind of competing against one another, um, even within communities, but coming together and looking at the situation and deciding you know, hopefully as, as, you know, on a consensus model as much as possible, but what are they going to do? What are they going to protect? What kind of coast are they going to support um, and maintain? Um, and economics is a powerful driver. Um, and I think it, it, it's going to continue to be that way for quite a while, but, but it's sort of coming down the road here and we're going to have to face that even these high property values right on the water, they are probably going to start to be undermined. And we've already seen some of that happening in Florida and other parts of the um, East Coast. And to me, one of the other things that is part of the economics on the coast is there's so many different people's money. I mean, a dollar from the federal government has a different value to the community than a dollar that comes out of their tax base. And so how you allocate monies from this broad range of sources, I think also is one of the things that maybe is happening more on the coast than in certain other areas. But as you talk about FEMA bailouts versus individual properties covering those costs, those dollars, while they might be the same amount, they're different dollars as you really look at them and think about them. So it's going to be an interesting future seeing how the economics probably changes as we go along and, and who's going to be investing in the coast in the future and in what, in what types of things those investments will be, uh, where, they're, where they're going to be focused. I think that's a really great point, Leslie. If you look at, I look at harbor dredging a lot. So it all comes back to the sand for me, because again, without the sand, you don't have a beach. And so our communities here in, in central California and Southern California are really reliant on the dredging of our harbors, which in most cases comes from dollars from the Army Corps of Engineers. And they're dependent on those on that on the Army Corps to dredge the harbor to place the sand down coast of the harbor so it can continue on its merry journey and nourish all of the beaches south of there. And then they dredge it again and dredge it again. So what happens when sea level is coming up and the Army Corps has 
different priorities and our harbors are no longer getting those federal dollars to nourish their beaches. It'll be interesting to see who pays for it then and what happens to our beaches and how quickly now are we going to have to change our management strategy, like you said, when those dollars are coming out of our local tax base or or having to figure out a new way to fund those things. It'll get really complicated. So are there things you thought I was going to ask you about your paper that we haven't covered yet? Anything you want to bring up? I don't think so. I think you did a great job. I mean, I think the message we try to convey there is just sort of what is meant by the word managed retreat, looking at the long scale trends, the short term trends, the steps along the way, how there are actually very few great examples of managed retreat, how it's part of the conversation that needs to happen. It's not a black and white issue. I think we did a pretty good job covering it, Leslie. Okay, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you've covered it really well. Um, and you know, just to kind of echo Kiki, I think what we were trying to do, especially coming from a few different perspectives, and we talked about this a lot while we were writing that piece, is you know we were trying to kind of lay out as much of the issue as we could, focusing on California. But what we're really trying to do is is kind of keep a conversation going um, about about kind of the, the current situation, right? That, that it looks different in various communities, but we kind of have this broader issue that we're all looking at here in California. But I mean, this is coasts all around the world. Um, and so what we were trying to do with that piece was, was to start to kind of really look at it and talk through it. And um, we kind of see it as the start of hopefully a lot more conversations. Um, and I'm kind of looking forward to that because I think we need them. We certainly do. Yeah. And spoiler alert, the four of us are working on another paper, (laughs) kind of continuing on from this one, which will hopefully uh, start taking shape here pretty soon. Great. Hope it goes in Shorn Beach. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll keep you posted. Taking a bit of a detour, um, since Shorewards is about coastal literature, I'm wondering, are you reading any coastal books right now? I know you've got Moving to Higher Ground on your way to your folks, Kiki, I don't know whether you've already read it, but um, are you reading anything right now about the coast or what are your like one or two favorite coastal books that you would tell anybody in the world to start reading because they're so great? Oh, that's a great question, Leslie. Yeah, I'm, I just finished the Moving to Higher Ground book and I just love the way he writes because I think it's just so clear and very good even for a non-scientist And then, you know, I always pick up Gary's book called Our Ocean Backyard, which is, I think, a collection of his columns from a newspaper. And I love the little snippets there. That's one of my favorite coastal books. Um, And then, you know, I just got a hold of this book called Island Visions. It's by a publisher in Santa Barbara. And they basically have brought together all of these different people with different perspectives looking at the Channel Islands off the coast of California here. And they've written it and developed it in a way where they really focused on that sort of interdisciplinary lens, but they've geared it towards kids. And I love it so much. I actually have my students read it in my beach class because it offers such a great interdisciplinary, visually engaging look at the Channel Islands. Like, what is the geologic history and the ecological history and the cultural history and they're going under and why do we care? I'm actually talking with them to see if they'll do one on the southeastern coast as well, because I think it is so effective. Southeastern coast of the U.S., you mean? Of the U.S., yeah. Yeah. Basically where I'm from, because I want my sister's a, a elementary school teacher, and I think it is just such an effective way to communicate why we care about our coast and how they're threatened, why we should care, and what we can do about it from all of these different perspectives. It's really, really a neat book. Okay. How about you, Ryan? So what I'm reading right now are favorite books or both? Uh, Take your pick, both. (laughs) Okay. Um, So this one, actually, Gary told me about it, and I picked it up, and it's been really interesting so far. Um, It's called The Lure of the Beach by Robert Ritchie. Um, This is kind of a historical piece on, it's mostly about sort of 
kind of a change in the Western imaginary, uh, transforming the beach from a place of, you know, revulsion or, you know, disdain to something that is this higher, highly desirable place. Um, and I've read most of it. It's really good. It's really good kind of to working through how kind of ideas about the coast have changed and how it's become such a, such a, uh, you know, kind of like an iconic thing. Um, so that's one book I'm reading right now. Um, in terms of favorites of all time, I'm kind of all over the place with reading. There's this one that um, I think I told Kiki about it too, but there's this photographer, Harry Callahan. He did this uh, monograph in 1980 called Water's Edge. It's it's this really kind of austere little book, but it's a great little book with just all, he did kind of 30 years of photographing the coast and it's this great little book. Um, I really recommend that. Um, another one is by the political scientist, Scott Laterman. It's called The Political History of Surfing. This is from 2014. I use this in my classes all the time. It's really good for, I mean, I grew up surfing and, and I, I like to sort of rethink um, um, what I think I know. And this is a really good book getting into some of the histories and politics of surfing. Um, but I got to say that probably one of my favorite, favorite, favorite coastal books of all time is still uh, Steinbeck's uh, Sea of Cortez, in part because uh, in 1940, uh, John Steinbeck and Ed Ricketts, uh, one of the places they went to uh, was Cabo Pulmo Reef. And I always loved that part of it because I did a year of field work there. So that's still one of my favorites. It gets pretty philosophical, but it's some good stuff. Great. Those are really great suggestions, Ryan. I want to pick up. I'm like, oh, I got to put that in my cart. The lure of the beach. Ooh, there's one more. There's one more. John Erlinson's um, A Canyon Through Time. And it's like this really long environmental history of uh, Tecolote Canyon in Santa Barbara. Really good stuff. John Erlinson, he's an archaeologist. He's done some really great work on uh, Ch Channel Islands and other places. All right. That's on my list now, too. These all sound really good. So, so you both put me to shame. I, I just got back from vacation and um, I have a, I'm almost finished with a, a sort of vacation, sit by the water or, or read on a plane book by Carl Hyacin. And it, it, it's called Razor Girl. And if you don't know Carl Hyacin, he's great for thought provoking, but kind of um, whimsical writing of the wacky people in Florida and the Florida Keys. And one of the wacky characters he has is um, a, a, a rather um, it, underhanded kind of businessman who runs pretty shady deals. And one of his companies does beach nourishment, Kiki, and, and the company is called Sediment All Journeys which I thought was a great name for beach nourishment. That is a great <laughs> name. That is totally That's going on stuff. my list now too. But, but it's certainly <laughs> not the, um, the quality. It's, it's great literature in its own right and what it's doing, but it's, it's not the, the learning a whole lot from it, but it's a great way to relax and enjoy thinking about the beach and reading it at the beach is probably also wonderful, but. I'm putting it on my list, Leslie. That sounds fantastic. Okay. I love that. I love that beach nourishment is making it into novels and stuff. This is great. <laughs> That's great. Oh, there's one other one. I have to bring this up. I have to. And I almost mentioned it, Leslie, when you brought up the economics of all this. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140 is a monster of a book. But there's some parts in the early part of the book. One of the main characters is this like financial speculator. And what he does, his work um, is sort of speculating and, and tracking the coastal markets. This is a flooded New York City. And there's these parts of the book in terms of sort of imaginative and speculative fiction that I think are really good for thinking about what kinds of financial issues um, and economic issues we may be looking at. He's talking about buildings collapsing and people betting on them, people having to abandon them and how much they're worth and how they're running in markets and all the different indicators that they're constantly tracking 
um, as these buildings are inundated and as they sit in water for decades over time. It's really interesting. Well, that sounds good too, Ryan. You guys, I'm not going to get any work done. I'm just going to be sitting. You don't need to work. Fantastic reads. So, so now that you've got your huge reading list for the year, what's your favorite beach? Where are you going to be taking these books and reading them? Oh my gosh. My favorite is Nicholas Canyon State Beach right down the coast between right around the county line of Ventura and Los Angeles. I can see some new cliff erosion. I always walk the beach and then there's usually great parking and no people there. So it is sort of the perfect spot for me. Okay, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to do two favorites. All time, all time, all time favorite beach is in Cabo Pulmo. There's a beach um, south of the community that it's got these kind of high cliffs and you can go on like an hour long walk. There's all kinds of cool geology and it's just an amazing beach. Um, I mean, I love it. That's fair. That beach is one of the most beautiful. Oh yeah. You know that beach. I know that beach. You took me to that beach. I love it. Right. Right. That's right. Uh, We did some field work in Cabo Pulmo a couple years ago and, and Kiki got to see that beach. So that's one. The other one is um, the northern part of Big Sur. It's called Garapata Beach. Um, oh, that's really nice. intense beach um, with a little river running out to it. But I love that spot. You can really see the power of the ocean there, especially if you check it over time and see how much sand moves yeah. um, just week to week, day to day. Love that's a that good place. one. I also like Moonstone Beach up near yes. Cambria because I just get fascinated and will sit there and play with the sand forever. So many good ones. There are. There are. Leslie, what's your favorite beach? Where are you going? Oh, I think all the beaches in California are my favorites. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that is fair. I, I've got to be pretty fair for right now. Ryan Kiki, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. For uh, the Shorewards audience, I want to say thank you for listening to this episode with Kiki Patch and Ryan Anderson. And it's been both educational and inspirational. And you've gotten an amazing reading list out of this. And I encourage you to um, read their article if you haven't already seen it. It's in the fall 2020 issue of Shorn Beach. It's well worth reading still, despite having heard a lot about it on this podcast today. And you've also gotten a lot of great reading ideas and thoughts about the coast in general. So thank you for listening. And till the next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. Thank you, Kiki, and thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was really fun.